Well, I want to add my amen to everything that, um, that Matt said at the beginning of the service. It's a privilege to wear a t-shirt, even on Palm Sunday, like my grandmother would have freaked out. <laughs> she, uh, she would not have been happy. But it really, it is a privilege. Uh, I think God ordained that I did not preach last week because um, I was a mess. And, um, you know, maybe it'll be encouraging for you to know that, that there's a group of pastors in this uh, community who are all really buddies. And we get together probably four times a year, all of us in the same room and have lunch together. And then throughout the course of the year, you know, one-on-one we'll get together. And, and Bob has always been a, a very special place or part of that. And, uh, and I love that man dearly. Um, and I would ask you to pray for him with me um, as we go forward. But I'll tell you, we love also uh, the leadership at Calvary Chapel. We have some very, very dear friends over there, uh, men and women of great, great gifting and great, great integrity. And uh, we gathered together on Tuesday, that pastor group with one of them, and laid hands on him and prayed for him and prayed for them uh, and for Bob and Diane. And, um, you know, there really is only one hero in this world. And I don't think I need to tell you this, but it's not me, just in case you're wondering. (laughs) It's not. It's not. And and I know that. And I hope you know that. Um, And it's not Bob. Uh, It's Jesus. And the whole of Scripture, every character in the Bible, teaches us that. And so does life, guys. So does life. All right, well, as we continue today with our study of the books of First and Second Samuel, we get to meet a new character, and his name is David, and he is absolutely awesome. David is the most significant character, humanly speaking, in the entire Samuel narrative. And here's the reason why. Because David, more clearly than any other character in the Samuel narrative, points us to Jesus, gives us a picture of Jesus. And Jesus, as we've been talking about for 13 and now 14 weeks straight, is the king that every one of us, all of us, desperately needs. But here's the deal. If you're just joining us today and you've missed the last 13 weeks of story, you might be thinking, okay, well... You know, can you catch me up on that? Because why is Jesus the king that we desperately need? I'll answer the question and I'll answer it even from the story that we'll look at together today. And the answer to that question is this, because when the perfectly holy God, and that's who he is, when the perfectly righteous God, when the blazingly flawless God, who is the creator God, who is our judge, who is the God of the universe, Okay, when that God looks at me and when that God looks at you, he doesn't just see our eyes and our ears and our hands and our feet and our nose and our mouths and our faces. That is to say, he doesn't just see what I see when I look at you or what you see when you look at me. He doesn't just see that which is on the exterior, though he sees that which is on the exterior. And by the way, he is a personal eyewitness to absolutely every moment of every one of our lives. There is not a thing you have done, there's not a moment in your life, there's not a thing you have said that has not been said in his presence. That's a little unnerving, isn't it? But it's bigger than that, because when God looks at me and when God looks at you, he doesn't see as a man sees, his gaze penetrates all of that. He gets all the out here stuff, personal eyewitness, don't forget that, okay, but he also gets all the in here stuff. His gaze penetrates 
to what the Bible refers to as our heart. And when the Bible talks about our heart, it's not talking about the blood pumping mechanism in our chest. It's talking about the core of our being, the seat of our emotion, the locus of our desires, the center of our will and of all of our thought processes. God sees even that. He sees the real me. And he sees the real you, which brings us, by the way, to why it is that we need King Jesus. Because that perfectly holy, perfectly righteous, blazingly flawless God, who's our creator and judge, and who holds us to the standard of his own perfections. Okay, well, he sees it all. He sees our heart and only Jesus can heal that. Only Jesus can cure that. Only Jesus can purify my heart and yours. And so as we pick up our study today, we're introduced to David. And if you've been with us, here's what we already know about David. We already know that King Saul, who is presently the king of Israel as we re-enter this story, and who will remain the king of Israel, incidentally, for another 10 or 12 years. King Saul is going to be replaced, and he's going to be replaced by David. And we know that because God has already chosen David to be King Saul's replacement. And we know as well that God has chosen David, not because he's big and tall and handsome and all of these things that describe Saul, but instead because of the heart that God has created in this man. It's amazing. And we know this because back in chapter 13, God, through the prophet Samuel, came to Saul. And I want you to imagine this conversation from the perspective of Samuel. This is a tough message to deliver. And it wrecked their relationship. God, through the prophet Samuel, came to Saul and said, hey, need to tell you a couple of things. A, already chosen your replacement. B, I'm going to describe him for you. He's 6'5", he's good looking, you know, he's hands more handsome than everybody else, he's very articulate, he's, it doesn't describe any of those things. That's Saul. And he's been rejected. He says, this man who will replace you is a man after my own heart. He has a heart like God's. Now, we're looking for Jesus in the story, are we not? He's the king we need. He's who we want to see. He has a heart like Jesus. The heart of God himself. And so as we return to our study this morning, 1 Samuel, beginning in chapter 16, verse 1, here's what I want you to see. When God looks at you, he doesn't just see out here, he sees in here. He sees your heart. And only Jesus can heal and cure and purify your heart, and that's, that's why we need him. We pick up the study today, 1 Samuel 16, beginning in verse 1, where we read this. It says, and the Lord said to Samuel, how long will you grieve over Saul since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? So what is Samuel doing as we pick up the story? Samuel is sitting around moping. Samuel is paralyzed in grief. Samuel, and maybe you saw this as you've studied through this book in your personal worship, has quite the affinity for Saul. I mean, it's very carefully written into the narrative, but there's a sense in which Samuel has become Saul's new dad. When Saul becomes anointed as the king of Israel, Samuel takes him that night, if you'll recall, into his home, you remember? And he sends away his father's servant and so forth. He's taking over from Kish, the father of Saul. It's his adopted son in some sense. And he's broken over Saul. He's personally devastated. And God is coming to Samuel, who's frozen in his grief, and he's saying, hey, 
there is a time to grieve and then there is a time to move on. And what I'm telling you now as God is, okay, now it's time to move on. So he tells him, fill your horn with oil, meaning an anointing oil with which he will anoint the next king is the point, and Samuel knows that. Fill your horn with oil and go, and I will send you to Jesse, the Bethlehemite, the man from Bethlehem. And here's why, because I have provided for myself a king from among his sons, which incidentally, since we're looking for the story of Jesus in this story of David, means that God's chosen king is one who will come forth from Bethlehem. But now notice what Samuel says. Samuel, who lives in the town of Ramah, and who now knows that he needs to go from Ramah to the town of Bethlehem, where God's chosen king is, knows as well that in between Ramah and Bethlehem lies Gibeah, and that's Saul's hometown. So he's going to have to pass through the town of the reigning king to get to Bethlehem to anoint the next king, And, you know, honestly, that kind of freaks him out. So he says to God, how can I go to Bethlehem to anoint David as king? Because if Saul, whose hometown I'm going to have to pass through to get to Bethlehem, hears of this, he will kill me. Which tells you what about Saul? It tells you that he was nuts. That he was crazy about his kingdom. That he was willing to murder to keep his kingdom. Sounds a little like Herod, doesn't it? In the Jesus narrative. So God says, go, and Samuel throws up the objection and says, hey, you know, but if he finds out, he's going to kill me. And God says, all right, well, here's my answer to that. The Lord said to Samuel, well, then take a heifer, take a young cow that's never had a calf with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Because here's the deal, Samuel, just like you did with Saul, you had a sacrificial feast and all of that stuff and everybody consecrated themselves. All right, you need to do that again anyway. So bring the cow with you so everybody can see it. And when they ask you where you're going, uh, I'm going to Bethlehem. And when they ask you why you're going there, I'm going there to offer a sacrifice. Now, that's not the only reason I'm going, but I'm not going to come out with the rest of it. That's the idea. Take this heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. And then once you get to Bethlehem, invite Jesse to the sacrifice and then I will show you what you shall do, and you shall anoint for me him whom I declare to you. And you say, yeah, but Tabba, that still sounds a little bit deceptive. And I want to be really careful attributing the word deceptive to our perfectly holy, perfectly righteous, blazingly flawless creator, judge, and God. I think the way that I would look at this instead is that I would say that God has made a value judgment regarding Saul's worthiness to the full story. And in light of his murderous intentions, God has found him wanting. God has found him unworthy. So what he's doing is he's coming to Samuel and he's saying, hey, listen, don't give Saul the full story. Don't do that because all that's going to do is facilitate his murderous intentions. And it will not be good for you, Samuel, and it will not be good for the whole house of Jesse, which will get wiped out, and it will not be good for the nation, and it will not even be good for Saul who will one day stand before me. I'm the judge. Let us graciously not tell him everything. 
So God says, go to Bethlehem. Samuel says, um, yeah, but, you know, then I got to pass through Saul's hometown and he's going to kill me. And the Lord says, all right, well, then take a heifer with you and say that I have come to sacrifice to the Lord because you need to do that anyway. And then invite Jesse to the sacrifice and I will show you what you shall do and you shall anoint for me him whom I declare to you. And then Samuel did what the Lord commanded and came to Bethlehem. And now notice what happens. The elders of the city of Bethlehem, who are apparently aware of Saul's madness, and who are definitely aware of the fact that these guys, Saul and Samuel, okay, they are not on the same page anymore. That's a problem. Samuel shows up, and they came out to meet Samuel trembling, and they said, do you come peaceably? Because, you know, we're a little freaked out right now. And Samuel said, peaceably. I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Now consecrate yourselves, get cleaned up, get ready, and come with me to the sacrifice. And Samuel consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. And then we read that when the sons of Jesse came to the sacrifice, Samuel looked on Eliab, who was the oldest son of Jesse, and he thought to himself, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. Now, why does he think that? Because this guy Eliab is like 6'5", and really good looking and very articulate and very capable. Samuel should know better, shouldn't he? Guys, that's Saul. And that hasn't worked out very well. It's about the heart. And this is where he learns that. And I pray that it's where we learn it. Samuel looked on Eliab, this oldest son of Jesse, and thought, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. (laughs) But the Lord said to Samuel and to me and to you, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature because I have rejected him. And then here's the key verse to the whole story. God says, for the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance. And that's true. It's all we can see. But the Lord's gaze is far more penetrating than that. The Lord looks at our hearts, which is not that blood-pumping mechanism. That's an MRI, okay? You can see that. It's the core of our being. It's the seat of our emotions. It's the locus of our desires. It's the center of our will and of all of our thoughts. The Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. So not Eliab then. And then Jesse called Abinadab. He's thinking, well, you know, maybe it's my second oldest son and made him pass before Samuel. And Samuel said, nope, not him either. Neither has the Lord chosen this one. And then Jesse made Shammah his third oldest son pass by. And Samuel said, "Uh uh-uh. Got any more? Neither has the Lord chosen this one. And Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, you know, the Lord has not chosen any of these. Then Samuel said to Jesse, are all your sons here? And Jesse said, well, you know, there remains yet the youngest. But behold, look, he says, he's keeping the what? He's keeping the sheep. So play this out. God's chosen king is a king who will come forth from Bethlehem. 
He will come forth from Bethlehem. Okay, but there's a mad king already in place. And there's a mad king who is murderously intended toward him and in fact would kill him if he could only discover his identity and location, but he can't discover his identity and location. Why? Because God has come to Samuel in this case and said, don't tell him the full story. He's been denied the full story. So he cannot kill God's anointed, who incidentally is a boy from Bethlehem, and he's a shepherd. The images just all line up. And so Samuel said to Jesse, well, then send and get him, because we're not going to sit down to enjoy this feast until he comes. And so Jesse sent and brought David in. And then we read that David was ruddy. It it means that he was like reddish brown, and maybe it was a reference to his hair. We don't know the answer to that. I think probably it was a reference maybe to the color of his skin, that he looked vibrant and full of life is the idea. And he had beautiful eyes and he was handsome, which means that if that's you, good news, God can use you too. Isn't that sweet? That's awesome. But it's not about that. That's the whole point of the story. That's not what matters. What matters is the part that's in here. And David comes in the room and the Lord says to Samuel, Arise and anoint him, for this is he. And then Samuel took that horn of oil and he anointed David in the midst of his brothers. So how do you think they felt about that? Nope, it's not you. Nope, it's not you. Nope, it's not you. Not you. Not you. Not you. Good grief. Is there anybody left? Well, we got the kid in the field. Bring him in. Tim. It comes into play next week. He anointed David in the midst of his brothers, and the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David in a supernatural, really unique, mission-empowering way from that day forward. And then Samuel rose up and went home to Ramah, probably around Gibeah. But replay it. God's chosen king, whom the mad king would kill if only he could discover his identity, but that's been foiled. For he's been denied, according to God, of the full story. Is a boy from Bethlehem who is also a shepherd whom the Spirit has come upon in a very unique and powerful way and who also, as we now discover in the very next verse, in verse 14, demonstrates some degree of mastery over evil spirits. For we read this, verse 14, Now the Spirit of the Lord who has just come upon David, is the idea, departed from Saul... And a harmful spirit sent from the Lord, which is a little bit also unsettling, isn't it? Tormented him. What is God doing? He's removing his power, if you will, his spirit from Saul. He's giving the spirit to David. And he is sending a spirit that torments Saul. And specifically that diminishes his capacities. Little by little, he is taking Saul down in the eyes of his own men, as we see here in this story, and ultimately in the eyes of everyone else, while at the same time, David is going up. David goes up in this chapter into the court of the king. Next chapter, wow. So God is diminishing Saul, and he's exalting David. They're two very contrasting 
trajectories. And if you've done your personal worship for this week, then let me ask you, what is the answer for this tormenting spirit that God sends upon Saul? The answer in a word is David. Saul's men rightly diagnose his problem. You are being tormented by a spirit from the Lord. Pretty insightful. And then they rightly prescribe you know, the treatment plan. We need to get a musician to come in here who is skillful to play music that you might be soothed when you're being tormented. And David has apparently made quite the name for himself as a musician, even as a boy, and they bring David in. Saul calls for David, not knowing who David is. And David comes, and what does he bring with him as gifts? Bread and wine. And he plays, and the tormenting spirit leaves. Humanly speaking, David provides us with a clearer picture of Jesus than any other character in either of these two books. You see, just like David is the chosen king, Jesus is the chosen king. David comes forth in Bethlehem. Well, guess where Jesus is born? Just like Samuel came to see David and had to pass through the city of the reigning king to get there, here come the Magi. And where do they go first? Jerusalem. To the city of the reigning king, King Herod, who just like Saul is crazy about his kingdom and murderously intended toward this one born king of the Jews, toward the one that he felt was a threat to his kingdom. And he would have killed him, but for the fact that God foiled his attempts. How? By coming to the Magi, sort of like he did with Samuel, and saying, listen, this guy Herod, okay, he is not worthy of the full story. I know that you made a deal and said you'd come back and tell him where the Christ child is. Nope. Go home by another way. Striking, isn't it? Just like David is a boy from Bethlehem, Jesus is a boy when he's visited by the Magi. Just like David is a a shepherd, Jesus is the self-proclaimed good shepherd. David receives the Spirit in a unique and powerful way. The heavens part and the Spirit descends upon Christ like a dove. Just like David manifests at least some semblance of power over evil spirits, so also does the Lord. And just like David is a king who comes bringing bread and wine, Jesus Christ, who is God made a man by means of his perfect life, and then the laying down down of that perfect life in suffering, death, burial, and then ultimately resurrection to heal our hearts, to cure our hearts, to purify our hearts, comes bringing to us the broken bread of his body and the spilt wine of his blood. It's amazing. And it's a good thing, because when that perfectly holy, perfectly righteous, blazingly flawless, did you get all that? Creator, judge, God of the universe, who holds us to the standard of his own perfections, looks at us. He doesn't just see what happens out here. Listen, that would be enough. But he sees in here. Absolutely everything in here. The good, the bad, and the ugly. He sees our heart, and that's why we need Christ. So I want to ask you a couple of questions. One is, have you given your heart to Jesus? Have you recognized that, uh (laughs) uh-oh, there's a problem, and that there's a solution 
that God in grace has given to you in Christ. Mercifully offering you the broken bread of the body of His Son and the spilt wine of His blood to cover your sin. To bring you into His family. Have you given your heart to Jesus? And then secondly, different question. What are you doing with your heart? And specifically, like, what are you letting into your heart? And what are you holding in your heart? Storing up and keeping there. Because if you haven't gotten the message of this story today, your heart is the most important part about you. And if you don't believe the writer of 1 Samuel, let me give you the words of King Jesus himself. He says this in Matthew 15, beginning in verse 18. He says, but what comes up out of the mouth proceeds from the heart. You know, And you want to argue with him and go, you know, Jesus, you live back in the first century. We have got a little bit more sophisticated understanding standing of it today. So it has something to do with the lungs and air, and then the lungs compress the air, and the air comes out, and it goes through this voice box, vocal cord thing. I don't know. I'm kind of making it up as I go. And then it comes out the sound into your mouth, and your mouth forms and shapes the sound, and then it comes out. That's where words come from. Now, that's how words are mechanically formed. They come out of this thing that the Bible calls your heart. What comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart and defiles a person, for out of the heart comes more than just words. Comes everything. Come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. It's a non-exhaustive list. I mean, you can just keep adding on. What is Jesus saying here about our hearts? He's saying, hey, the biblical heart, that part of you, okay, that is the command center of your life. It governs over every other part of your body. Every word that you utter or don't when you should comes out or is contained within that heart. Everything that you do, every place that you go, every it's all governed by your heart. So what are you doing with your heart? What are you letting into your heart? What are you storing up and holding in your heart and what should you? I think Solomon answers that. He comes to us in Proverbs 4, self-consciously knowing that he is speaking God's word. And so he can say this, my son, he says, be attentive to my words because he recognizes I'm anointed and am speaking the word of God himself. Be attentive to my words, incline your ear to my sayings, let them not escape from your sight and keep them where? Within your heart. So what is he saying to let in? God's words. Why? For they are life to those who find them. It's a matter of life and death. They are life to those who find them and healing to all their flesh. And then he says this, and it's not a suggestion. He's not saying, ah, try it out. He says, keep or literally watch over your heart with all vigilance. And here's why. For from it flow the springs of life, or as the NIV says, it says it is the wellspring of your life. And so Solomon is coming to us and going, hey, oh, you guys are talking about the heart. I've got an image for you that I think is going to be helpful. And it's the image of a well. And we're like, you know what? It's not helpful. (laughs) We're like, we live in 2014, man. When we want water, we just turn on the faucet. So fill me in. Okay, well, 3,000 years ago in the ancient Near East, when you wanted water, there was no faucet. You grabbed your water jar and you hiked down to the well, which generally speaking was the well, the singular only well for your little town or village. 
And here's what you knew to be true about that well. You knew that your life and the lives of everyone around you depended upon the viability of that well. And you knew that as long as that well remained pure and clean, it would bring forth life and health, but as soon as it became corrupted, sickness and death. So guess what you did? You watched over it with all vigilance. You recognized it's that precious. It's that important. It's that central. Solomon's like, oh, you guys talking about your heart. Okay, this is cool. All right, now that I've explained all that, here's the deal. That well in that village is like your heart in your life. So what are you doing with your heart? First of all, what are you letting into it? Because Solomon's coming to us and going, hey, I'm going to tell you what to let into it. Here's, here's what not to let into it. Don't let porn into it. Don't do it. Don't let violence into it. Don't bring degrading and insulting garbage into it. Lyrics, whatever. Don't believe all of the voices that you hear from friends and TV and culture and whatever. I mean, I'm, and I own TVs, so I'm not ragging on TVs. But don't believe all these voices that come to you and that say, okay, listen, you really shouldn't be satisfied. How can you possibly be happy with what you have? You can be happy, but only if you get this, and then this, and then this, and then this, and then this, and a never-ending list of this. It has you running on a treadmill, (laughs) wearing yourself out, going nowhere, and gaining nothing. He's like, listen, if you want to know what to fill your heart with, fill your heart with God's words, for they are life to those who find them. They are healing to all their flesh. And so then what are you doing with your heart? What are you letting into it? And then secondly, what are you storing up and, and keeping within it? What are you holding in your heart? Like if your heart was like one of those old-fashioned coffee cans, remember those things? It's been a while. You know, like they had the metal lid and you actually had to use a, uh, what is this, a can opener, right? I see it's been so long, I can't even remember the name. <laughs> can opener. You know, like all the kids are like, what, what is that? You know, the can if you could just kind of pop that dude on there and crank it, crank it, crank it, crank it, and your arms aching finally by the time you get there, and then you get it like just open enough where you can get your you know, hands up underneath the lid. You've got to be careful because you could cut your fingers. It's really sharp. And then you just kind of pry that dude open like this and then spill it all out onto a table, and you began to sift through it. What's in your heart? What's in there? Bitterness? Anger, insecurity, shame, resentment, unforgiveness, guilt. Bring it to Jesus. Bring it to Him. And begin to store up and to experience in there the joy and the relief that is found through recognizing that he's the only hero. (laughs) And indeed, he is heroic. That he is the rescuer and the purifier and the one that we need. And begin to experience and fill your heart up with the peace that comes only through faithful obedience to his word. The wisdom of Jesus brings order. The wisdom of this world brings disorder. Chaos. And there is a major difference between the two.
So when God looks at us, He doesn't just see who we are out here. That's scary enough. But He sees who we are in here. And that's why we need Jesus. Because only Jesus can heal and cure and purify our hearts. So bring your heart to Christ. Find your forgiveness and find your identity and find your security and find your relief from guilt and from shame and from sin and all of those things in Him. Find the ability to forgive and the fact that God is able to forgive you in Jesus and begin to release all those things that have been holed up and canned up inside of your heart. Let Him help you turn the crank on the can opener sift through it and be free and then fill it with His Word. Fill it with His wisdom and by His Spirit and with His people, learn to live it out. Okay? He's the only hero. Let's pray. Lord, we are thankful that in Jesus, God, we find a hero Um, a deliverer. Um, Lord, we find relief from your gaze. We see in him one who has rescued us by the perfect life that he has lived, by the suffering and death that he endured for us, by his burial. And God, as we will celebrate so joyously next Sunday, his resurrection in which He has defeated not only sin for us, but death as well. Lord, let us bring our hearts to Him. Let us find our forgiveness in Him. Let us be made whole and healed by Him. Let us fill our hearts with the relief that is found only in Him, with the value that we have in Him, the security that is found through Him. And let us fill our hearts with His wisdom. God, that we might know His peace. We pray all these things in Jesus' name and for His glory. Amen.